Chapter Six of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter Six: A Clue and a Verdict. I drove home with my thoughts in tumult. The look on Wood's face and the vehemence of his words made me sure he was in some way responsible for Jim's death. I walked the floors for hours trying to build up my case against him. He had sworn to kill Jim unless he let Helen go, and he must have known that afternoon that not only was Jim going to keep Helen from him, but that he had the proof with which to ruin him forever. He had planned to have it out with Jim at the country club, knowing it would be a cold, damp night and that few people would be out there. He had emphatically stated that Jim should come alone. And should be there promptly at half past eight. All those facts pointed to a man's guilt, and I felt sure that in some way I should be able to unearth the proof. I knew I ought to sleep, but sleep was the last thing I could do. Twice I called up the hospital to inquire after Helen, but they could tell me nothing. Had the operation been successful? Yes, she had come through it. Would she get well? Ah. That they could not say. They would let me know if there was any change. I sent a telegram to Jim's uncle in the West, the only relative Jim ever corresponded with, and told him to notify any others to whom the news would be of vital interest. Toward five o'clock, when dawn was just graying the windows, I threw myself on the bed. I suddenly realized I was extremely tired, yet my brain was buzzing like a dynamo. Pictures and scenes from the last few days flashed through my mind: the vindictive look in Helen's eyes after the fight with Woods, that table being wheeled out of Helen's room at the hospital, with the moaning white bundle on it, the upturned car pricked out of the darkness by the automobile lamps, and finally, Frank Woods' face when he heard that Helen had been in the car. With the realization that I ought to get up and close the window, where the morning breeze was idly flapping the curtain, I fell asleep. I woke with a start to find the room flooded with golden sunlight. A glance at the clock on the mantelshelf showed me that it was after nine. My body was cramped and stiff, and I felt stale and musty from having slept in my clothes. It was only after a cold shower and a complete change that I felt refreshed enough to pick up the threads where I had dropped them the night before. Again, like the sudden aching of a tooth, came the heartbreaking realization that Jim was dead. With it came also anxiety for Helen's condition, so I called up the hospital at once. They could only say that she had not recovered consciousness, but she seemed to be resting comfortably. I went down to the office to tell the stenographers they might have a vacation until after the funeral, and to lock up. The first person I found there was Inspector Robinson, who was calmly reading over the correspondence on Jim's desk. With all the sangfroid in the world, he met my infuriated gaze. "Good morning, Mr. Thompson. Thought there might be something here touching on the case." He waved a hand towards Jim's letter basket. "Have you found the black limousine?" I asked. "Certainly, my dear man. Certainly. 
We not only found the car, but we found the people who were in the car, and they know nothing about the accident. My first explanation was the right one, and I knew it would be. Felderson was driving recklessly, saw the bridge, put on the brakes, skidded, and was killed. But why should he put on the brakes at the bridge? I queried. I've thought of that, he smiled. Perfectly logical. There's a nasty bump at the bridge, and he naturally didn't want to jar Mrs. Felderson. So he turned into the ditch and pitched her out on her head instead, I jeered. That's all poppycock. I've taken that bridge at full speed a hundred times without a jar. It's immaterial anyway, he snapped, frowning at me. You can't make any fool mystery out of it. The point is that Mr. Felderson put on his brakes rapidly, perhaps for a dog or a rabbit, and skidded into the ditch. It's not immaterial, I burst out angrily. There was a real reason for his putting on the brakes rapidly. He was afraid of hitting something, or of being hit himself. Who was the driver of that other car? The son of one of the biggest men in the state, Karl Schreiber. Karl Schreiber, I cried, the son of the German socialist, who was put in jail for dodging the draft? I grabbed him by the arm. Quick, man, who were the others with him? Robinson gazed at me with a stupid frown. Two reporters from the Sun, a fellow by the name of Pedersen, Otto Metzger, and that Russian Zalnik who just got out of prison. Zalnik! I yelled exultantly. Zalnik, the man Jim had sent to prison, and who had threatened revenge. Metzger, who had been his accomplice all along. Schreiber, who hated Jim, and all the virile Americanism that he stood for. Peterson and the two reporters I didn't know, but they were no doubt of the same vile breed. A fine gang of cutthroats who would have liked nothing better than to get rid of Jim. They probably saw his big searchlight that makes his car easily recognizable, and realized their opportunity had come. They had driven toward him as though to smash into him and made Jim take the ditch to get out of the way. That explained the sudden jamming on of his brakes that had caused him to skid and overturn. All these thoughts passed through my mind as I heard the names of the men in the black limousine. Inspector, I said, I'm fully convinced that the men in that black limousine are responsible for my brother-in-law's accident. What makes you think that? he demanded, eyeing me narrowly. Because all of them had a reason to hate and fear my brother-in-law. Zalnik, since his release, had sworn he would get even with Mr. Felderson for putting him in prison. Metzger felt the same way. As for Schreiber, I'm sure if he could have manipulated that car so as to cause an accident to Mr. Felderson, he would have done it. You're crazy, Robinson sneered. This thing's gone to your head. How could they have known it was your brother-in-law's car? By the big searchlight on the front. It's the only car in the state with such a searchlight. Mr. Felderson's car was so fast that the police sometimes used it, and he had their permission to wear that light, as you probably know. Also, it may have been dark enough to use the searchlight, and yet light enough so that the car could be distinguished at a hundred feet. If there was any light at all, that big peck with Pierce car could be recognized by anyone. He was impressed.
I could see it by the thoughtful, shrewd look that came into his eyes. Already he was making arrests by the wholesale in his mind. But I can't go pulling these men for murder on such slight evidence as that, he exploded. No one wants you to, I said sharply. All I want you to do is help me find out whether those men were present when the accident happened. The idea of helping me didn't please him at all. As soon as I had spoken, I saw my error in not putting it the other way round. Now, Mr. Thompson, you better keep out of this, he advised, getting to his feet. I know that you are anxious to find out if these men had anything to do with Mr. Felderson's death, but the case is in good hands. We're professionals. We can do a lot better when there's no amateurs messing about. You leave it to me. Just as you say, I acquiesced. Get busy, though. And if you find out anything, let me know. Robinson stood a minute, turning his derby hat in his hands. I knew what he was after. By the way, I added, I'll pay all expenses. His face brightened at once. Well, now, that's good of you, Mr. Thompson. I wasn't going to suggest anything like that, but it'll help a lot. I handed over several bills which he pocketed with satisfaction. Don't worry a minute, Mr. Thompson. We'll get those birds yet. I was pretty sure that they had something to do with it all the time. You've got the best man in the department on the job. He put on his derby hat with a flourish and trotted out the door. I recalled that I had told Mary I would see her, so I dismissed the stenographers and locked up the office. It was a perfect morning, with all the warm, spicy perfumes of Indian summer. Overhead, a blue sky was filling with tumbled clouds of snowy whiteness. The rain of the night before was still on the grass and the trees, giving a dewy fragrance to the air that was invigorating. Now that I had found a possible solution to the tragedy, I was filled with enthusiasm. I felt that if I could bring Jim's murderers to trial, I would conduct such a case for the prosecution as would send them up for life. They had succeeded in carrying out their threats, but I would make them pay for it. I stopped in front of Mary's house and honked the horn. She opened the door and came quickly to the car. The tragic news of the night before had taken the laughter out of her eyes and the buoyancy from her step. I could cry my eyes out, Bups, she said as she climbed into the car. Don't do it or I'll start too, I responded, a lump coming in my throat. How did it happen? she asked as we drove away. The papers gave a long account. But said it was an accident. Zalnik did it, Mary. At least I'm almost sure it was he. I told her what I had learned during the morning, and as I talked, I finally touched on Frank Wood's strange words of the night before. You don't think he had anything to do with it, do you, Bups? No, I said. I did think so, but I have changed my mind since this morning. I suppose it was just his grief that made him act so queerly. He does love Helen, Bups, Mary murmured. Helen got quite confidential while she was staying with me, and the things she told me about Woods made me see that he really was in love with her. Yes, I suppose he does love her, I responded, but he had no right to take her away from Jim. It's the man who takes a woman whether he has the right or not, 
that wins, responded Mary seriously. I looked at her, wondering whether she was growing the least bit personal. She was looking straight ahead with an unsmiling gaze. As I glanced at her, there beside me, with the breeze blowing wisps of golden hair around her temples, I got panic-stricken. Mary, I began, watch where you are going, Bupps. I fastened my eyes on the street ahead, but only for an instant. With Jim gone, I was going to be fearfully lonesome. I glanced at her again. Mary, I know this isn't the right time or place, but let's go to the hospital and find out about Helen, she interposed quickly. She knew we were going there all the time. The mention of Helen brought me back to earth with a snap and made me realize I had no business talking about love at such a time. Yet never in my life did I feel more like telling Mary how much I wanted her. We had no sooner entered the cool hall of St. Mary's than the little intern with glasses, whom I had seen the night before, came hurrying up to me. Mr. Thompson, we have been telephoning every place for you. My heart jumped to my throat. Is Mrs. Felderson? No, he responded. Mrs. Felderson is still unconscious. It's Mr. Felderson. The coroner has made an important discovery. I waved for Mary to stay where she was and hurried downstairs where Jim's body lay. It had not been moved before the coroner's inquest. The room was dark and several people were gathered around the inquest table. All eyes were turned on me as I entered the room. A portly man detached himself from the group and came toward me. Mr. Thompson? Yes. I am the coroner. In making my inquest, I find that death is not due to the automobile smash-up. Mr. Felderson was shot through the head, from behind. We have rendered a verdict of murder. End of chapter 6